book of Nehemiah open in front of you, however, we're going to go visit a couple of verses uh, as we kind of recap or conclude or tie together uh, what we learned. Now, I'm hoping that much of what I'm going to say this morning is uh, not going to be new information for you, but it's going to be a reminder of things that we talked about. Now, maybe you missed the sermon here and there, which is fine, and perhaps you're here this morning as a visitor, which means uh, you didn't hear any of this. But uh, hopefully, if you have some familiarity with the book of Nehemiah, you can see uh, some of these things that we are pulling out, uh, trying to kind of summarize and put together all the things that we learned. So I'm just going to jump in because I think the easiest way to uh, make sure that we're uh, moving through this is to jump in. And we're going to start with the very first verse, and I hope that doesn't scare you. It doesn't mean we're going to, you know, read every verse that comes through. But I'm going to start with the very first verse because it introduces the character to us and reminds us that this is the book of Nehemiah, Right? The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. These, this was a real man that lived uh, in history, and he, uh, he uh, had some things that God asked him to do, and he did many of them very admirably from our perspective. At least when we read through this book, there's very little, at least from our sense of it, there's very little that uh, Nehemiah did that uh, God had to correct. You know, when you read the book of, uh, when you read the Bible, you come into contact with lots of characters that follow God's call, and many times uh, you, you bump into stories or p- bump into parts of stories where God had to correct that person. And I just want you to know, Nehemiah was not perfect. I have no, I have no uh, uh, I'm not trying to say that at all in any way. Nehemiah was not perfect. But when we read the book of Nehemiah, there's not very much that we uh, get a sense of that God had to correct him on or had to, had to say, Nehemiah, you're not doing this right. So we find in Nehemiah an incredible example of a person, not just a, a, a story of, of what God wants to do. But when we first jumped into this, the very first message I preached, I shared with you that we're going to look at this so we can apply this book in three different areas, or there's three different uh, sort of contexts in which we can look at it. The first is simple. I already said this before, but uh, this is a historical book. That's really what this is. It's in the section of the Old Testament that is part of the history of the people of Israel, and that's why you see things like a whole bunch of names, because it's a book of history. There are people that recorded that lived and did things or, or, or acted in certain ways or behaved and, and, and responded or maybe were the part of the opposition, but they're real people that lived, and, the, and we can read this book for the historical purpose of what happened in the lives of the Israelites. You remember they were in exile, and they first came back with a man named Zerubbabel, and about 60 years later, they, some more came back, a group came back with a man named Ezra, and then finally this book we're reading about, they came back about another 30 years after that with a man named Nehemiah. And with each successive return, God continues to rebuild what he is uh, what, uh, what has been destroyed in the nation of Israel, particularly in the city of Jerusalem. Now, rebuilding is a key word in this whole book, so you're going to hear that word a couple of times today. Rebuilding is uh, one of the emphases of this book. And it's necessary for us to know this because not only as we're studying the history of the people of Israel, they were walking with God. They said yes to the covenant of God. And then as they came in the promised land, you see them uh, stumble over certain things. And you see them and then wander away. And then God brings them back through some means. And then they drift away. Then God brings them back. And this back and forth. And, uh, and you read through the books of Kings and Chronicles. And you see this up and down of faithfulness to God and unfaithfulness to God. And finally, God says, I- I've warned you, and I've warned you, and I've warned you, and I've warned you, and I've warned you. And now I'm going to bring judgment upon you. And they're scattered. And now this is the rebuilding. This is important because not only do we read this book for its historical value, we look at this and say, well, we can learn more from this than just 
that a guy named Nehemiah lived and led a group of people back into Jerusalem and rebuilt a wall and reestablished some practices, and that's great for history. Now I could pass the test. Because there's spiritual application to this for us today. There are principles that are contained in this book. Well, the book of Nehemiah, but in this book in general, I hope you understand how I mean that on more, more than one level. But there's principles contained in this book that have meaning for us. They have weight for us. They have impact on our lives. They ought to. If they don't, well, I, I suggest to us we're not doing a very good job of living faithfully with God. Now, one final piece with Nehemiah that I pointed out at the very beginning when we go into this book is that in Nehemiah, we find this incredible, uh, this incredible manual almost of what godly leadership looks like. We see Nehemiah do things that many times I catch myself reading through and thinking, that's a brilliant move, Nehemiah. That's a brilliant thing to do. I would never have thought of that. I would never have handled that this way. In fact, as we went through, I tried to uh, point out, as I looked at the leadership uh, things that came out, the godly leadership, I tried to point out how Nehemiah was demonstrating exemplary character traits and giving us a textbook for how godly leaders operate, and I tried to record them for you. In fact, this morning, I don't know if you did this when you came in out there where the bulletins were at, I thought, I'm just going to repackage them for you and put them in a little, uh, like a little insert for your bulletin. I think we, I came up with 17. There are more than 17 you probably could have come up with by the way, but I came up with 17 specific godly leader characteristics. I'm not going to read through them. You can take them with you if you want to, uh, and it can be your sort of mini textbook or mini manual for uh, if you think of how you should respond in, an, in, a, in, a, in a case where you have leadership over someone, uh, there's, there's a good manual for you. By the way, I think we should understand that leadership is really all about influence, and just about every one of us has influence over other people in some way. Almost every one of us exerts influence over other people in some way. Some in a far greater degree than others. Whether we're officially in some kind of leadership position, we all have some kind of influence. The way we act has some kind of influence on the people around us. That's always true for every single one of us. Which means the things that Nehemiah demonstrates to us by how he act, acted has impact or has importance to every one of us as well. We can read through that and say, this is how I respond in a godly way to things that are happening around me. Now, some of us are really in leadership positions, and so it becomes even more important. Leadership is not the thing I want to spend time with this morning. The bulk of what we want to bring out of this text is the spiritual application that we can gain from this. It is good, of course, to know the historical context. It is good, of course, to, to, to sort of glean those leadership things. And if I were teaching a specific uh, course on leadership, I've actually done this. Uh, I would pull some principles from Nehemiah and uh, would apply them that way. But that's not, in the context of a Sunday morning church, that's not what we're going to spend most of our time doing. We're going to spend most of our time looking at what happened with the people of Israel as Nehemiah was helping them to rebuild and say, what does that look like for us? So if you'll remember, also at the very beginning, I said, not only do we have these three sort of areas or contexts of application, as we're talking specifically about the spiritual application into our lives, that there are multiple levels that we can apply this at. The first one, we did not spend a whole lot of time. We could have, but quite frankly, it would have turned into just a lot of... of hand-wringing over how, where our nation is at, and I wasn't super interested in that. It, is, it could happen, by the way. You could apply the principles of what's happening in Nehemiah uh, and say, this is what a godly nation should look like. I mean, it is what a godly nation should look like. Safe to say, I think, for most of us in agreement that uh, our nation tends, is moving away from that. 
We're not, we're not uh, moving towards that. We're moving away from that. At one point in our history, we probably could have read the book of Nehemiah and seen how there were ways that our uh, uh, government leaders, our, our national leaders, our, we as a nation were bringing out things, uh, we're, we're living out things in Nehemiah. Today we could say very few of those things apply. Doesn't mean it, doesn't, it, it couldn't be done, but uh, that's not what we chose to spend our time. We chose to spend our time with a lot more of this. That we can apply the things we're learning spiritually to this body as a church. That when God is interested in reforming or rebuilding uh, us as the people of God, that we can learn as a, as a group, as a local church body, we can learn from the book of Nehemiah. My challenge to us all the way through was that we are picking those things out and saying, what does this look like for Riverview? What does this look like when this happened or this interaction or when Nehemiah did this or when, when the people did this or when, they, when this was, what came about? What does this have to say to us? Now, you can keep breaking it down into small and smaller units because, uh, after all, the local church is made up of families, right? There are families inside of this church. And much of what we learned in the spiritual lessons can be applied to us as families, should be applied to us as families. We have units that live together and are supposed to be a family. And unfortunately, too often, we find ourselves simply living together and not being a family. And, of course, a family is made up of individuals. So, quite frankly, you do have the capability of reading through the book of Nehemiah and making spiritual application to your particular life. In fact, if we're going to talk about what it looks like to be reformed into a godly person... Maybe we should uh, work all that backwards, right, and say that it depends on the individual units inside of a family to be godly, and when, then when the family becomes godly, and then family units become godly, that makes the church godly, and when uh, families, uh, churches become godly, that will make a nation become godly. So what does that tell you about which direction we're headed in our nation? Therefore, it leads us to say, I hope it leads us to say, that we ought to be bucking the trend. We ought to be going a different direction from what the rest of culture around us tends to be going. Now, very early on in Nehemiah, we found out that there's a trouble, right? There's a problem, which is what any good piece of literature is going to tell us, that right at the very beginning, we're going to be introduced to a problem that has to be solved. And Nehemiah finds this out in verse number three of this book. So here we made it two verses down the road. Nehemiah finds out as he gets a messenger from the city of Jerusalem to where he's at, I think he's in Susa, if my memory tells me correctly, that he finds out that the remnant that is there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. Two words we focused on at the very beginning. There's great trouble and shame, and it's typified or exemplified or represented by the fact that the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. There is a problem here. Nehemiah finds out that there is an issue that needs to be resolved. The wall is broken down and the gates are destroyed by fire. Now, this was a real physical problem, right? It was a real physical problem. He, he was concerned about the physical problem that was happening in Jerusalem. But as we went through the book, we understood that there was much more going on than just the physical problem of not having a wall and, not having, and having gates being burned. Now, he was concerned with the physical rebuilding. But... I would submit to you that he and God was far more concerned with what was happening in the hearts of the people and not just the walls. What we saw happening physically was a representation of what God was doing internally, inside. Now, Nehemiah doesn't waste a lot of time, right? 
He decides that this is, uh, this is something that, that God is stirring in him that needs to change, that needs to, that needs to be, uh, needs to be cha- reformed or rebuilt. And so he makes an appeal. He, he's fasting, he's praying, he makes an appeal, he gets sent. And when he comes back and he makes an inspection of, of, of what the situation really is, he comes to his own people and he says this, come, let us build this wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision. He saw the rebuilding of the wall as a removal of the derision they were under, the trouble and shame they were in. And again, I tell you, he saw that in a physical sense, but he recognized that it was true much more than just physically. After all, when we got to this spot, we talked about the fact, actually probably before this, we talked about the fact that we need to recognize or talk about what a wall is really for. Why did they, why was the wall such a big deal? What purpose does a wall even have? It makes sense for you and I, and I'm just going to tell you this again this morning. We talked about it way back then, but it doesn't do a whole lot of good for us to spend a lot of time trying to apply what kinds of walls or what kinds of, what, what we, how we apply this or how we should talk about this if we don't understand the purpose of the wall to start with. Why do we have walls? Why did Jerusalem have a wall? Well, we talked about three reasons why we have walls. The first two, I think, are very uh, logical and very easy to understand. Walls obviously restrict us, right? Walls keep those that are on the inside from going outside or keep what is inside from going outside. Walls serve a purpose like that. There should be walls in your life. Did you hear me? There should be walls in your life that keep you from doing things you shouldn't do. You should not shy away from being restricted. It's called discipline. It's called training. It's actually what Paul wrote in the book of Titus that God sent his grace to us for is to train us, to discipline us, to live godly, upright lives, not giving in to our own selfish desires, but to live godly, upright lives in this present age while we wait for the glorious appearing of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You and I, let me make it very clear, you and I should reject the lie from the culture around us that restrictions are bad. Walls restrict us. They keep what's on the inside where it belongs. Walls also are a protection, right? They keep what's on the outside from coming in. They do both at the same time. A a barrier presents, uh, prevents what's in here from going out. It also prevents what's out here from coming in. You should have walls in your life that protect you. That's also a good thing. You should not shy away from that. You should not feel like that's Uh, like you are less of a person because you put things in place to protect you. Ultimately, however, when we talk about walls, and I think one of the reasons that every time the walls are mentioned in the book of Nehemiah, it also mentions the gates. Because if we were only after restriction and protection, you could just make a solid wall around you, as it were, and live inside there the entire time. Right? If that's all we're after is restriction and protection, then you would never make a, put a gate there because there'd be no reason to go in or out. Right? So ultimately, what we, I think, need to understand is walls do provide restriction. They do provide protection. That's 
really true. But in the end, what we're really after is that walls provide identity. They're referring to identity. They define where something starts and where something stops. So if you're picturing the city of Jerusalem, for example, and the walls are broken down and the gates are burned, then there's no more definition. You have countryside and it just kind of goes into some rubble and some few houses. But when there's a wall around it, then anyone who's approaching can say, oh, what is this? There's something here. And I know that Jerusalem starts on the other side of this wall. And when I'm out here, I'm not in Jerusalem. When I'm in here, I'm in Jerusalem. Take that physical example. And again, we're more worried about the spiritual. We're more about the internal, which means what we're really talking about is our identity as the people of God needs to be rebuilt. There needs to be restriction. There needs to be protection. But what we're really talking about is the fact that we need to be known. It needs to be known. There's a definition made where God starts and we stopped or where those in the kingdom are and those outside the kingdom are, if you want to put it that way. There needs to be a definition so that when people come up to you, they say, ah, here I'm not in the kingdom of God. Here I am because of the way I think, the way I have an ad- the attitude I have, the things I say, the things I do or don't do. When I'm in here, I'm, I'm identified as a believer. When I'm out here, I'm not. This is why walls and gates are so important. This is why this book is here for us. I mean, we learn history, but the spiritual application is that there is an identity that is being re- rebuilt, reformed. And that is what is at stake here. God's people were no longer known as God's people. Please do not miss the parallel. I would use the word irony, but that makes it sound like it's okay. And I, I'm, please do not miss the parallel between then and now. God's people were no longer known as God's people. It was no longer clear or obvious who God's people were. There were several reasons for that. Again, we're talking about a wall, but as you read the book of Nehemiah, you understand there were several reasons for that, right? Because they didn't behave any differently on the Sabbath, for example. They did the exact same thing everyone else did. They didn't behave any differently. They, they, they didn't, they, their, their worship was all a jumble. They had people who weren't supposed to be in the temple that were there and living there. They were married to people that were from other faiths and, and they brought that faith into their own family and, and they just mixed, mingled together. God's people were no longer identifiable as God's people. And it had to be reformed. That identity had to be rebuilt. This same thing remains true for us today, does it not? When Nehemiah came to Jerusalem and he began to point out these problems, the people responded with these words, let us rise up and build. You see, Nehemiah was the catalyst, but he wasn't the only one. There were people that came from the other side when he began to describe this great trouble and shame they were in, and they said, we're going to change it. That's why I encouraged and exhorted each of us here in our church to say, we're going to be among those. Let us be among those that say, we're going to rise up and build. We're not going to say, well, we don't care. It's not such a big deal. The wall looks like that. It's okay. It's not. We're okay with where we're at. We're going to change it. And I pointed out to you that day, that the, when we did this message, I pointed out to you that day that this phrase, let us rise up and build in the, in the Hebrew Old Testament that, we, that, we, that this is based on is really only just two words. This is what their, this is what their response was. Kum bana, rise and build. And I'm going to 
loop back to that in a little bit here. But as they, as they, as they echoed that call and said, we're going to rise up and we're going to build, we're going to recognize that what Nehemiah was really after was two main things. The rebuilding, two main things he wanted to see. This is what we can see from the end of the book. We could not see this in the beginning of the book. But the end of the book, we can look back and say what Nehemiah was really after, which is what, because what God was really after, first of all, was the purification of the people from heathen practices. He wanted there to be a distinction or a separation, a purification from heathen practices. If there's things that the non-believers do, then we should not be doing them. And I don't say that from a reactionary standpoint, as in I'm going to watch them, and if they do that, I'm not. I'm going to say that from a proactive standpoint. This is what we saw happen in the book what we read, right? They began to read the Bible, the Word of God, and say, oh, we're not supposed to behave that way. We're supposed to do this. We're going to change. So it was not that they looked at the people around them and said, oh, they're doing that. We've got to stop doing that, which, to be honest, is sometimes how we respond, isn't it? If we know we're supposed to be different, we look at how the world does things and say, oh, then we can't do that. That's not the rationale for why we do or don't do things. Please understand that. The rationale for why we do or don't do things is contained here. In this, if God says we should be doing it, we should be doing it. If God says we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be. We'll talk about a few more of those things as we go. But what, what one of Nehemiah's primary purposes is to purify the people from heathen practices. A second equally important principle for him, or rebuilding for him, was a restoration of regular worship a restoration of the worship, the corporate worship of God's people. You notice many of the things, think back at the last chapters we just covered in the book of Nehemiah, many of the things that Nehemiah was camping out on and saying, I'm gonna change this. And in fact, as some of you pointed out, got a little upset about it, right? He chased people away. He pulled out their hair. He warned them strongly. Many of the things that he gets really, really upfront about are things that are purifying them from heathen practices and restoring the regular worship of God's people. I underline those words, purification and restoration, because they line up to the rebuilding that I'm talking about. That's this, they're, they're forms of the same word, the same concept. A reformation, a rebuilding, a purification, a restoration. Yes, there was a wall being built, but that was simply to point us to the rebuilding that God was doing inside of them. Purified from all the practices of those unbelievers around them and restored to a corporate worship of God as they should have been. These are the things that Nehemiah was after. I want to move now to one of my favorite verses from the entire book of Nehemiah. I've actually shared this verse a number of years ago. I called it Nehemiah's battle cry. As Nehemiah is... Uh, they're beginning to start this work of rebuilding and opposition comes. He calls them together and he says this to them. He says, do not be afraid of them, of those out there, those that are threatening, those that are going to come harm us or saying they're going to. Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You see why I love this verse? It comes out as a battle cry, right? It comes out as a rallying cry. Don't be afraid of the opposition out there, but remember God who is great. And by the way, that word awesome is the exact same word as do not be afraid of them. 
So remember God who is great and fearful, if you want to put that word in, who is great and fear-inducing. Remember God who is great and fear-inducing and fight for your brothers. Fight for your family. Fight for your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. Don't sit back passively. Church, this is the battle cry we still have today. Let's not stand idly by while culture comes and sweeps our children away or our families away or our own hearts away because let's be honest. If that influence is going to come from somewhere, it's often coming right through mom and dad themselves. I picked this verse also because in it we see the great theme that resonated throughout the book of Nehemiah. And in fact, I would tell you throughout the entire Bible. Is this choice that you and I have to make every day of our lives. Who, this may sound weird to say it this way, and I know people that react negatively against this kind of preaching. But I'm going to say it anyway. Who are you going to fear? Who are you going to be afraid of, if I can use that word? Who are you going to be afraid of? I know much of modern, sensible preaching tries to wipe fear completely away and talk about the great love of God, which is true, by the way. God loves you incredibly, more than you can even know. I'm, I'm quite confident, more than you can even know right now. God loves you and cares for you. But make no mistake, God is great and awesome, mighty and terrible, high and lifted up and fearful. He is holy and perfect and pure in every way. The question is who, as you respond to life and make decisions and do what you're going to do or not going to do, who are you afraid of? Because in this, Nehemiah makes it clear to them. You can be afraid of those people out there who are muttering threats against you, who are trying to bring division, who are saying, we're going to come kill you even, who are saying, we're going to smash what you've done, who are saying, we're going to put pressure on you, who are saying, nobody's going to like you anymore, who are saying, come away, who are saying, you have to come protect us, who are saying all kinds of things to distract you from the world. Or you can say, I'm going to fear God because someday I'm going to stand in front of him and have to answer to him. And those people will have nothing to do with it anymore. So who are we going to operate in fear of? I can tell you unequivocally that one day when you stand before God, you, know the true, that you will know the true answer. So my only encouragement or exhortation to you is to recognize that today because on that day it will be too late. The reality is Again, we don't like to think of it this way, but the reality is we will operate our lives almost always in fear of something or someone. It may be a fear of not getting what I want. Maybe a fear of me getting hurt or missing out or a fear of what that person thinks or is going to do to me. Or it could be a, a fear of if I don't please God, where does that put me in my eternal destination? Don't be afraid of them, but remember God who is great and awesome and fight. Fight for your brothers and your sons and your daughters and your wives and your homes. As we saw this fight break out, now it wasn't literal fights, but as we saw this fighting break out, I want to just point out the roles that some things played throughout this book of Nehemiah. 
We saw this purification, I'm gonna use those words again because that's what Nehemiah was after. Purification from heathen practices and restoration of corporate worship, of the worship of God. As we saw those things, I wanna point out a few things for the themes or things that played a role in getting them to the end of the book, getting this restoration, this rebuilding to actually happen. The first thing I wanna point out is that we saw prayer play a role. From the beginning, Nehemiah, the first thing he does when he hears the trouble and shame is it, uh, that the Jerusalem is in is he starts fasting and praying. He is so visibly affected by his fasting and praying that when he comes in the presence of the king, the king notices and says, hey, what's wrong with you? Your countenance is not good. You're suffering physically for something and you're not sick, so what's happening? What's going on? But we see prayer pop up in other ways, right? Because Nehemiah demonstrates this, this balance that he holds between praying and action. Through and through, the first couple of chapters, it just pops up again and again and again. Something goes on, and Nehemiah prays to God, and then he does something. But we also saw prayer come through at the end as they were together as a body of people. And they were responding to the word of God they were reading. And they began to pray and to fast themselves. And we've read this great long prayer of confession, in fact. But prayer has this important work in purifying and restoring. So I must ask the church of today, is prayer having its work among us? Or is prayer too boring? Or too lifeless? Or not worth our time? If I am to see from the word of God that prayer was one of the things that brought about purification from heathen practices and restoration of worship, and I don't find prayer in my life, then I don't think I can expect to have God do his rebuilding work in me. I don't know any other way to say it. Remember, we can apply these things personally. We can apply these things as families. We can apply these things as churches. Certainly as nations too, but again, I... Didn't spend a whole lot of time there. The second thing I saw very clearly that played a role in bringing about purification and restoration was the word of God itself. Now, the first place that crops up is very early in the book of Nehemiah, but I tell you, it's an implicit reference. But Nehemiah, when he finds out the trouble Jerusalem's in, we should understand that he knew exactly the history of Israel. He knew exactly what God had said was going to happen, and then he saw it, and he knew that it had happened and he also knew what God had said was going to happen as he restores things. This is why he saw the great trouble and shame. He said, this should not be so. These are God's redeemed people. This is the God of the universe. And look at the place where his presence was at. And it's lying in shambles. Look at his people. And they've lost their identity. This should not be so. The only reason Nehemiah could know that is because he knew the word of God. He knew it should not be so. But we saw the word. It was obvious later on as the whole group is gathered together and they're, they're all gathered in this square and they spend significant amount of time for multiple days, at least eight days in a row, where they were reading from the word of God as a corporate body and they respond to it and there's weeping and, and they're throwing dirt on their heads and they're saying, how can this be that we have fallen so far away from who we are supposed to be? The word of God is having its effect among the people. Again, purifying them from heathen practices. It seems so obvious to me, and yet I'm not saying this uh, derisively or judgmentally. I say this including myself. It seems so obvious to me that we have only one way to know what God wants us to do and not to do, right? And that is to know his word. 
how else are we going to know? If you did not have the Bible and I were to walk up to you and say, how, how, what, what, how do you know what you're supposed to do, what God wants from you? You'd be saying, I, 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 I don't. You saw this happen with the people. They had no idea until they began to read it and the Levites began to explain it and they began to wail out loud at how they had missed what God had said. The word of God was having its work in them. There's one more I think that again is not necessarily explicit in the text and yet we see it. I've mentioned it, referred to several times. I think the role of community in the purification and restoration of the people of God is so visibly demonstrated in the book of Nehemiah. Very little of this restoration happens in the context of one person is at his house and he's reading the word of God and praying and he wakes up and says, oh, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. And he begins to do what he's supposed to be doing. Almost all of the restoration, the, the, the restoration of worship and the purification and all those things happens in the context of the entire community together. And they begin to realize we are not doing what we ought to be doing. I would probably tell you that's one of the chief reasons Nehemiah was so concerned with the restoration of corporate worship is because he knew as the body worships together and as the body is together, that's when this purification happens. As we together expose ourselves to the word of God and pray, that's when we begin to realize what we are doing is not correct or what things need to change. I'm not saying it doesn't happen individually. Of course it does. No question it does. You should have your own individual times. No question. But as families and as churches do this, that's the power of purification and restoration that God wants to bring about in his people. Mostly, do you want to know why that's true? Mostly because we have this fantastic ability to excuse and justify ourselves. I call it fantastic. It's not really that great. That makes it sound like it's a good thing. It's a bad thing. And when we're with other people, then they, especially our family, because my family knows me, and when I get to this awkward part in the Bible that I'm reading that, that indicts me, that points out how I'm not doing something how I should be, or my attitude's not like I should be, when I'm doing it by myself, I can just sort of quickly scan over and be like, eh, yeah, 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 that's not good. When I'm reading it out loud to my kids, then they can say, hey, Dad, what about the time you lost your temper? That's right. I shouldn't do it that way, should I? I was not being controlled by the Holy Spirit, was I? I did not have the identity of a person of God, did I? That's not good. I'm sorry. Same thing happens here, by the way. This is treading on dangerous ground. But if I proclaim things here from this place, and you know me in my life and know that it doesn't match up to that, then we have trouble, right? It doesn't work. A, my words fall on deaf ears because you in your head are thinking, I know what you're like, actually. And B, it brings about a whole bunch of hypocrisy and bitterness that ought not to be there. But in the context of community, as it should be, it provides opportunity for someone to come to me and say, hey, Merlin, you said this in your sermon today, but the other week when I was working with you or when I saw this, then this is... I, that doesn't quite match up. This, by the way, is one of the things that has come to worry me the most. I've been a senior pastor now for 11 years. 
which one of you will come to me and tell me I'm doing something wrong? That's hard, right? Which one of you is going to presume they're going to go tell the senior pastor that he's not doing something right? But it must be so, my friends. And I can use myself as an example. I say that, and I hope you can translate that to yourself because most of us carry around some kind of uh, dislike for people telling us when we did something wrong. But that is how it should be. And I'm not talking about keeping track of all your neighbor's sins so that you can go tell them. Remember Jesus' words about things like beams and specks. But I'm not shying away from the fact that these things happen in community. That's how it ought to be. Because you can see rough edges that I have. You can see weaknesses that I have. You can see places where I am missing or am blind to something. And that, by the fact that I'm blind to it means I'm not going to see it. And your role as a part of the community of God's people is to come make me aware of that and help me, exhort me to walk more faithfully to what Scripture teaches, to what the Holy Spirit is leading us in. And mine is the same for you. All of these things, prayer, the word of God and community lead us to these things that are so prevalent in Scripture and we see it no less in the book of Nehemiah. Confession and repentance. When you and I realize that we have done something that we ought not to do, we have thought something that is not true, we have performed an act that is a sin against God, we have uh, had an attitude towards someone that is not not a godly attitude, not a Christ-like attitude. When we become aware of those things, the mechanism by which God has given us to be made, come right again with him is to confess that and to repent of it. To acknowledge that I was wrong and to change direction. To do away with that. And we see it so clear in the book of Nehemiah and it's there for our instruction. Again, we need to reject the lie from culture that it is a bad thing to find out that we were wrong. I tell you, it is a good thing to find out that we were wrong because now you have the opportunity to change what you're thinking, to become right. And once again, when that day comes when you're going to stand before the throne of God, if you did not become aware of being wrong in something and it prevents you from going to heaven, I think you're going to say, I wish I would have known back there when I could still do something about it. Which is all to say that when you become aware of that, Can we agree together to have soft and tender hearts toward God? That when something comes to us that may be an indication of wrong thinking or wrong behavior in our part, that we don't harden ourselves and say, ah, that's not how it is, you don't know. But to say, God, if this is true, I don't want that. I want to be right before you. I'm sorry. And I want to change by your grace. Again, it is why God sent his grace to us that we can walk right before him. Remember I told you about this phrase when Nehemiah told them about the wall around them? And he said, this is, this is bad, guys. This is bad. The wall is destroyed. The gates are burned. And they responded with a, let's rise up and build. Kumbana. We see the parallel statement coming when they read the word of God and they pray together and they confess as a community and they repent as a community and they make this big old covenant, in the beginning of that prayer of confession, we read these words. Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. You would be uh, not surprised perhaps to find out that that word stand up is the same word as the word rise up and bless is not the word build, but in Hebrew, 
See, we don't get this in English. I guess they start with the same letter. But in Hebrew, it's a very clear parallel. Because what they said in the physical realm, kum bana, rise, build, they then said in the spiritual realm, kum barak, come, let's rise and let's bless God. I can tell you the rebuilding and restoration and purification of God's people is blessing God. That's what he wants. That's how we give him our blessing is to have our hearts tuned to him and let him form us as he wants to. I'm going to end today with the phrase that I've ended each one of my last three sermons, so I hope you're okay with that. But in the end, when it all gets said and done, Nehemiah has this recurring cry. And you know what it is, right? Do you remember what it is? What is it? Remember me, oh my God, for good. Or he's, now the end part was a little different each time, but remember me. Keep in mind, and I want to do two things with this phrase at the end. I want to encourage you this morning, and I want to make sure that we have our, our meta, our, our stand back theological glasses on correctly. I'll explain that hopefully in a little bit here. But I want to encourage you, first of all, if you have, through this study of Nehemiah, maybe not just through this, but you're already in that position, but if you have said, I want to be one of those people that rises and builds, that rises and blesses God, I want to reform my identity, I want to make sure it is right with God, I want to make sure that my identity is clear that I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you that you can cry out like Nehemiah did, and you can say, God, remember me for the things that I have done. And God does remember. He says that multiple times in Scripture, don't grow weary in doing good, for in due time we shall reap our reward when the time is right. That may be way down the road. I can, I, I'm sorry to tell you, it may be way down the road, but it will come. I also think you shouldn't understand that when we have our, our hearts toward Jesus turn toward Jesus, and we're not begrudgingly doing what he asks us to do, that we are rewarded right then and there because we have the peace of God that fills us and the joy of the Lord that fills us and, and tells us, uh, the Holy Spirit telling us that we are walking faithfully with him. I also use this phrase to remind you that no matter how much hard work you do, in the end, you are throwing yourself upon the mercy of God for it is him who does, wills and does every good thing in us. As Paul would say, he wants to strive with all that he has, but yet he continues to rely upon the grace of God. For it is God who works and wills inside of him. But be encouraged. If your intention, your heart's desire is to be right before God and to reform, to be purified from heathen practice and be restored to the worship of God as you, then be encouraged because you can cry out to God, remember me, and God does. But I want to do something else with this final statement because it's in the realization that Nehemiah, you know, why did he cry this out? Why did he cry out three times at the end, remember me, God, remember me? Why did he do that? Why did he have to do that? Why does the book end on those notes, this recurring thing where Nehemiah says, God, you got to remember what I did? Do you ever think about why did, why did he do that? What were the last three messages about? Maybe not in detail, but what were the last three messages about? Every single one of them was an instance where Nehemiah, after a little bit of time of having reformed the identity of God's people, where Nehemiah realized they were slipping away already, right? All three cases where Nehemiah left for a little bit, he came back, and all three cases were times when he looked at the people and said, what is happening? I just 
I just changed these things in your lives, and now you're slipping away already. I want to make sure that as good, studious readers of Scripture, that we take a big, giant step backward from just the book of Nehemiah and look at the whole thread of the entire Bible and recognize in this book, we read that Nehemiah returned and did a great work among the people, and there was a great stirring and a great rebuilding and a purification and a restoration and all those things, and it did not take very long for the people to begin to stray again. And it reminds me, and it should remind us, I don't say that to be discouraging, but I say that to remind you that all of the Old Testament is pointing forward to something or to someone, and that's Jesus. In this book, take, taking a step back and looking from a high level, in this book, we are reminded once again for all the things that we can do and restore and rebuild and put up walls and restore gates and, and reform the character of God in us and allow God to have it, for all of those things that we do, they all still fall short and the, the finality, the wholeness, the fullness, the, the perfection of it is found in Jesus Christ. Think of poor Nehemiah at the end of his life. Think of poor Nehemiah, every effort he gave, all the work he did, and he realizes still that there are some who have so quickly walked away. And he is left in the place that every single person of God in the Old Testament was left with. I am looking forward to that day when God sends the one he has said he will send that will finish everything. And his name is Jesus. By the way, all of the New Testament stands on this side looking back at what God did through Jesus. We today, actually, that thread of the New Testament pulled out and going on through our lives like this, we today are still pointing back to what God did through Jesus. It is our only hope. It's your only hope. It's my only hope to rest in what Jesus did. We are no different than the ones on the other side that no matter how much we try, no matter how much we do, we will inevitably fall short as does every single human being. Thankfully, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to do for us what we could not do. In Jesus Christ comes the reality, the fullness of purification and restoration. And we've, it was alluded to this morning. It was in our Sunday school lesson this morning. It was in our songs this morning. But there is a day coming when that will be done. What did Paul write to the Philippians? There's a day coming when my lowly body will be changed to become like Christ's glorious body. Amen. Hallelujah. That's what we're longing for. And the book of Nehemiah tells us we better fix our eyes on Jesus. We better know there's only one way that's going to happen. For all the magnificent things Nehemiah did, at the end his cry is, remember me, God. I'm looking forward to Jesus. Pray with me this morning, if you would. Father, thank you so much. Your word is good. It's living. It's active. It always, always, always points us to Jesus Christ. And so, Jesus, we come to you this morning, and we recognize that you are the Savior. You're the Lord of all the earth. You're the Savior of all mankind. And if we are not found in you, or if our identity is not in you, and we have not yet come to salvation. 
And God, we want someday to be with you in glory. We want to spend eternity with you, to know you, to have no more separation, no more distance, no more flesh, no more humanity in between us, no more sin in between us, but to be uh, fully there, to, be know, uh, to know you fully, even as we are fully known. And we long for that day. We recognize that you and Jesus Christ have made it possible and you've placed a deposit inside of us, the Holy Spirit. And we want to receive salvation in Jesus' name. We want to receive the Lordship of Jesus and we want to receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit as that down payment. For we know that you will finish the work that you have started. We are reliant upon you. That does not mean we don't make any effort, God. In fact, we want to be found striving as much as we possibly can to be right with you. But in the end... We are left in no different place than Nehemiah who was looking ahead. We look back and say, Jesus, it is only you. I'm reminded of the, the line we sang in our song this morning. I don't want to take it out of context too, too badly. But God, it really is true that all of our longings come home to you. Because we find the satisfaction of all of our longings in you. I pray, God, this morning that if there is a heart that is unsure or whether there's a heart that presumes to be sure, or whether there's a heart that knows. In any case, that we would take the opportunity given to us today to say, oh God, help me to be purified. Help us as a body to be purified and to be restored to the corporate worship. Help us to be sure that our identity is in Jesus Christ. And if we are not sure that today, right now, we will look to you and we will confess that I have no hope of myself. My actions are not enough. My, I'm not good enough. I have no chance except for you, Jesus. And so I throw everything I have upon you. And I know that means subjecting my will to you, humbling myself before you. I know that means cleaning you cleaning out my life and saying this doesn't belong. I know that means you rebuilding the wall around my life my family's life, my church's life. And I'm willing. I'm yielded. You said in your word, God, that if we want to follow Jesus, we must renounce ourselves. We must say no to our flesh. We must take up our cross and we must follow him. If there are those here this morning who want to follow you, Jesus, and we want to say we're here to say no to ourselves. We're here to pick up our cross and we're here to follow. I thank you, Father. Thank you for this book of Nehemiah, all the wonderful things you taught us through the study of Nehemiah. And I ask for you to not just help them, not just put them in our brains, but you put them in our hearts and our lives. Thank you for this body who wants to walk faithfully for you, uh, before you. I pray that you would help us fulfill that goal of having true fellowship together by your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.